You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Hey there, Redemption. Good morning. Uh, So it was pretty fun watching Johnny's kids during worship. They were enthusiastically shouting and screaming and giving big thumbs up to Johnny as he led, which I feel like is a really good picture of what God wants to see when we worship as well. So anyways, our kids, you're welcome to go back for Children's Church. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you in just a little bit. Y'all can find Darby in the back and head back that way. Um, I really enjoy having our kiddos with us um, for bits of our service. I think it's cool to see. I think it's helpful for us. I think it can remind us. uh, Sometimes we take life probably too seriously, Um, probably for good reason. But anyways, okay, a couple of things real quick. Uh, So we updated our COVID precautions. We're encouraging you to wear a mask. If you don't have a mask, it's not a big deal. Uh, We've got some in the front for you. No one's going to kick you out if you don't have one, but COVID's going crazy right now, and we put together a team of uh, people that are a lot smarter than I am, that, and we're just basically asking, hey, what should we do, if anything? And they're like, ah, there's really no reason not to mask right now. It just seems like a smart thing to do. And so we're going to do that to help um, keep each other safe, and more importantly, help keep each other's kids out of uh, being sick and stuck at home with us. And keeping us at work is probably the bigger issue right now. So, all right. If you have questions, you can go to our social media, and we've got an update there. You can find out way more details about how we came to that conclusion. So, if you're new here, welcome to Redemption. We're glad you're here. And in front of you, you'll see a card that says Radically Inclusive. Grab that card. When you pick it up, it says Hope, and fill it out. Drop it in the box on the way out um, at the end of the service. We would love to get to know you. We'd love to send an invitation and extend like uh, a real like, hey, we want to know you. We want to hear your story. We want to give you a chance to know us. So if you're into that, uh, fill it out. Drop it back. We'll extend an invitation. And if you're not into it, that's totally fine. The ball will be in your court. We're not going to like hound you or do anything weird. So. Uh, The reason that card says uh, radically inclusive hope is because that's who we want to be. It's because we believe so much of what the good news of Jesus is, is an offer of radically inclusive hope. And I think over the years, Redemption Church has done a fantastic job at living a real, like, as a congregation, a life of radical inclusion, I've seen us uh, care for one another and extend real invitation to one another regardless of, right, a a number of differences that we might have. There has been real welcome and inclusion in this place. And while we're not perfect, while we still have a long way to go 
to really live into what it means to be radically inclusive, I think we've generally done a really good job of this. But sometimes I wonder if in our effort and our mission to be radically inclusive, if we maybe forget what we're being radically inclusive to. If maybe we forget what the inclusion is into. I, I designed the little cards on the back like when I first started. It was like one of my first things uh, that I did when I started here almost three years ago exactly. And I designed them in such a way, y'all can be impressed by my like uh, Canva skills, okay? I designed them in such a way that when it sat in the thing, all you could see very neatly and nicely was radically inclusive. And the idea is you're supposed to go, ooh, radically inclusive what? And you lift it up and it says, hope, really big and uh, bold. And yet, I sometimes wonder if that card's not a metaphor for a real temptation of who we could become. Radical inclusion into a nice little social club. Radical inclusion into, I don't know, this thing we do on Sunday mornings that makes us feel a little bit better. Radical inclusion into something that's better than what's going on down the street. None of those are good enough. That if we're not radically inclusive into real, actual hope, I would suggest then there's no point in our radical inclusion. Radical inclusion is incredibly important, but radical inclusion without hope is nothing. So this morning I wanna ask the question, wait, what do we mean by hope? What is that big, bold hope that is unintentionally or maybe intentionally hidden and not in front of us every Sunday? What is that? So on January 6th, 2021, a day that will live in infamy, <laughs> a bunch of people stormed the Capitol. Um, as this was happening, one of the, the big takeaways in like my circles and in my world, and by that I mean my Twitter account, was the, the remarkable amount of Christian imagery that was associated with all of the other stuff that was going on in that moment. And, and it was kind of this, uh, I don't know, this climax of, of what's called Christian nationalism in the United States of America. That there had been this thing that had been building up and building up and building up and had finally come to a head here on January 6th as we see people with crosses and Jesus save signs beating people over the head, uh, beating policemen over the head in order to gain access to the Capitol. And what I want to suggest to you is that Christian nationalism is not wrong because they've got the wrong set of rules, right? See, Christian nationalism is, is the idea that, hey, we need to, to go in and we need to establish God's rules here in this country. That is the point. We are a Christian nation, and so we need to live by Christian rules, but I don't think Christian nationalism is wrong because their rules are different from our rules, I think Christian nationalism is wrong because they have the wrong hope. Over the last few weeks, and we've got two weeks left, we've been in the book of Acts, and our hope is in the face of so much confusion and just junk that's been going on in the church over the last six or seven years, 
So much of what we individually have experienced, so much what, of what we as a congregation have experienced, we're trying to like detangle some of that and get down to the root of like, wait, who are we? What does it mean to be the church? And so we've embarked on this trip into Acts in an effort to try and reimagine church. And as we've done that, we've looked at snapshots of the early church in the book of Acts. And today we're going to look at another, a very important one that I want to get at. It's Acts 17. And this is Paul's second missionary journey, right? So Paul used to be Saul, uh, was transformed by an encounter with Jesus. We did a sermon on that several weeks ago. You can go check that out. But he basically goes from killing Christians to becoming like the champion of Christ to those who don't know Christ. And as he does this, he goes to uh, the, the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. So he, he doesn't just cloister in Israel or in Jerusalem. He leaves and goes out to where Christ isn't known, where the good news of Jesus hasn't been heard. And so this is his second journey to do that. And he has a partner named Silas. And we dive into this story in chapter, or in, uh, verse 1. So after Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the scriptures. I think this is interesting. Uh, we often think of Paul as like dropping in and doing like this for like a weekend. He's there for at least a month, if not longer, spending week after week after week uh, arguing from the scriptures in the synagogue. Verse 3, and he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, which is just a really awkward way of saying, and a ton of the prominent women. So weird. And not a few of the leading women. So this is a consistent summary of what Paul would do. He would go to a new place, he would go to the synagogue, and he would, from Scripture, argue with the Jews in the synagogue, hey, look, I know you have this hope. I know you have this expectation of this Messiah who's going to come and offer, like, real deliverance to you. Well, let me show you what needs to happen. Right from the Scriptures, he would argue, look, this Messiah needs to suffer, and this Messiah has to die. But this Messiah can't stay dead. This Messiah has to rise from the dead. And so he would argue this and argue this, and then he would bring in kind of the, uh, the conclusion of his argument. And there's like, uh, right, this is like a philosophical, Greek philosophical argument called syllogism. Like he is actually, this is a formal argumentation. It's not just Paul like shooting from the hip. And his conclusion is, hey, Jesus is that Messiah. He suffered. He died. He rose again. Jesus is the hope you've been looking for. And what I want to suggest here is that the hope that Paul is offering in the synagogue, Sabbath after Sabbath, is actually and really redemptive hope. That, that hope in Jesus expects real hope redemption. Like Paul is not just saying, hey, I learned some interesting facts about Jesus and it'll maybe change your mind on who he was and then we can all go about our day. 
that he's expecting something significant to change, that this brand new information about Jesus suffering, dying, and resurrecting, that Jesus being the Messiah is somehow transformative news. And so he's offering them real hope. He is offering them a paradigm shift, a reorienting set of news. It changes the way that people see themselves and it changes the way that people see the world. And more than that, it changes the way they exist in the world. This is not just cool information. And they don't receive it as cool information. You see a radical change in these people's lives when they hear this news and they believe it. And so hope is actually really redemptive. But we see, as we always see with the story of Paul and his missionary journeys, that he's going to encounter some resistance. So verse 5, but the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some of the ruffians, man, this translation is great. My challenge, application for the week, go out and use the word ruffians, and God shall be pleased. Um, please, really, if you can do that and get it on film, that would be even better. Tag us in it. It'd be great. Some ruffians, and this is just a word that literally means like a bunch of like, uh, ruffians is actually a really good translation. It's like a bunch of like no good doers like hanging around the marketplace. They don't have jobs. They're like underemployed. They're like, uh, the suggestion here is that probably what's happened is they went and found a bunch of people hanging out on the street corner. They're like, hey, you want to make 20 bucks? Let's go cause some trouble. It's basically what's going on here. And so with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. They start to riot. And while they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. This is likely the house that, right, when people were converted in the synagogue or in the marketplace, they would gather to worship like we talked about last week. Jason was the house they were likely doing this in, which is why they go to his house. And they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city authorities shouting, these people have been turning the world upside down and now they've come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They're all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor saying that there's another king named Jesus the people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. So what I hope that we'll see here, right? One, hope is actually really redemptive. Two, hope is going to really infringe on all other hope. Like, hope in Jesus is going to take away all the other hopes that you might have, which is exactly what's going on here. The reason these Jews and the Roman officials are getting so upset is because something about the nature of this hope in this Messiah is like infringing in real tangible ways on the way they see the world. So they use this phrase, turning the world upside down, which is like fine translation, but literally the words here, it's the same word for empire is world. It's like the civilized, cultivated world, which in this context would have been the Roman Empire. And upside down is like 
Not just like, oh, it's kind of getting crazy. It's the same word that you use for like uh, usurpation. <laughs> They're toppling the empire. Don't you understand? These are the people that are going from place to place, overturning the empire of Rome. And now they've landed on our doorstep. So wait, how are they a threat to the empire? What are they doing that's so subversive? What are they doing that's so uh, overthrowing of this big, bad Roman empire? Well, they tell you in verse 7, and you can see by their reaction that they hear it exactly as such. There's another king named Jesus. And when they heard it, they were disturbed. Whoa, 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 whoa. They're saying, what? So this is Thessalonica. This is the same place that Paul is going to write the book of First and Second Thessalonians to. We know so much of what Paul did during this one or two months, right, in this, these nine verses that are here. We know so much of what he was doing and teaching because of First Thessalonians. If you want to know what in the world was Paul saying that was so radical and scary to both the Jews and the Romans, go read First Thessalonians. And he says things like, hey, don't worship idols. Well, so the problem is this. In Rome, there's this thing called the imperial cult. The imperial cult is like uh, the, the established way of religion. And it says that Caesar is somehow like divine himself and is a benefactor to all of Rome. And so there's this reciprocal relationship. You give Caesar honor and glory and worship and Caesar will give you benefaction, roads and bridges and like prosperity. The way you would worship Caesar is you would go to his temple and you would bow down to his or the previous Caesar's idols and you would worship the Caesar. Paul says, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't worship idols. We worship the risen Jesus. But, but then he also preaches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that this Jesus isn't just like this distant deity, that he's like, a real actual deity whose spirit is among us, and oh yeah, by the way, who is the king and who is going to come back again? And so now you've got a guy running around the Roman Empire saying, hey, there's another king, and that other king is coming to establish his kingdom here. And you start to hear like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. This is an actual threat to the Roman Empire. He's saying, look, the emperor's promise of peace and success is an illusion. Don't give him honor and glory and praise. Give honor and glory and praise to the only one who can actually give you peace and prosperity. And so fundamental to the message of Paul is that the only genuine kingdom is the kingdom of God. And that any appointed agent and heir, or the only appointed agent and heir of that kingdom is Jesus. So the claim that there's another king and his name is Jesus, or the claim that Jesus is Lord of all, is indeed to turn the world on its head. And this would have messed with the way that society as a whole worked. They, they saw, Right? A refusal to worship idols was called atheism in the very earliest church, which is interesting. It wasn't that they weren't worshiping God. It was that they weren't worshiping the gods. 
And the reason that in Rome you would worship the gods is so that you could have prosperity. This was an economic disaster. These Christians are among us, and they're not worshiping the pantheon. The gods are going to get mad at us. We got to kill them. They're messing with our wallets and our checkbooks. Right, anachronism, but you get it. And yet the Christian's hope was one that was subversive. Hope invites us to live into the kingdom that is coming rather than the one that exists now. Turning the expectations of how we exist within society on their head. Christianity was a very real threat to Judaism and Roman structures that upheld their society. They offered customs that gave cohesion and political stability, and the Christians were like, ah, we don't care. We're going to do our own thing. Um, so I, used, I taught at a Christian private school for a really long time, and I taught juniors, so 11th grade, and part of the benefits of this was I got to see a lot of them grow up, go to college, and like become adults and do great things with their lives. Um, I remember one time I encountered someone, they were in their junior year of college, we were catching up, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to take a gap year, and I'm going to travel the world doing mission work. Like, wow, like, this was a person that, when I had them as, like, a student, they were, like, you know, they were fine, but they weren't particularly interested in Jesus. Certainly not someone I would have said, oh, yeah, this person's going to become a missionary, stop their college education, and go, like, travel the world in order to share the good news of Jesus and help people. And yet, this is exactly where they ended up. And then I talked to their parents. <laughs> their parents, who were very much involved in the church that they grew up in, very much invested in their child's life as a Christian, and very incredibly disappointed in their child's decision to stop school and go be a missionary. Right? And that's not to say that we should all stop school and go be missionaries. That's the right way to please God. It's not that at all. It's that their fear was rooted in economic reasons. But what if they never go back to school? What a waste of time and money. More importantly, what are they going to do for the rest of their lives? They're never going to be as wealthy as they could be if they would finish this accounting degree or whatever it was. What if she had a different hope? What if her hope was rooted in something other than the way that our world is structured and our society measures success and life? What if her life was about something else? The other thing that hope does is hope does not confuse earthly kingdoms and power with Jesus' kingdom and power. Right? Instead, it turns any expectations that we have of political power on their head. So Paul, and we see this very clearly in some of his other letters, letters like 1 Corinthians, he sees like institutions of the world as, pass, as no passing value because like they're all eventually going to be like usurped by Jesus and his kingdom. And so he sees them as valuable in so much as like they can be used in order to extend the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. 
Will uh, being a former Pharisee help me do that? Great, I'm a former Pharisee. Will being a Roman citizen do that? Great, I'm a Roman citizen. But he never led with any of these. He always led with his relationship to Christ. See, Christian nationalism isn't wrong because they're trying to institute the wrong rules, although maybe they are, suggest they are. (laughs) But maybe Christian nationalism is unchristian because they have the wrong hope. Maybe they think their hope is in gaining and exerting political power. This is how the kingdom of God will come, through our political savvy, through our legislation. Um, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. If you're a Christian nerd, you're a Lord of the Rings fan like I am. (laughs) Yes, your pastor just called you a nerd. (laughs) I called myself one too. Um, So like one of the beautiful things about the Lord of the Rings is it's just just good quality like literature and even the films. Uh, The Hobbit was a bit of a disaster, but that's a whole other conversation. Like the the original three films were really good. Um, But what I love so much about it is it is such a beautiful like depiction of so many things that we as Christians are like, yes, this is exactly what the world is like, yes. Right at the center of this story is there's this ring of power that has been invented by this evil being in order to like hold authority over all of the earth. And now this evil being has this ring of power and he is now going to destroy the earth with it. What are we going to do? We got to get the ring. And we got to destroy it. And yet, almost every single character who encounters the ring as they're holding it, all of a sudden begins to think, you know what? Maybe this power isn't all that bad. You know, I bet we could use this power for a lot of good. I bet, in fact, we could save the world with this power. Even the best of them were tempted to use the power of the ring in order to save the world. And yet Middle-earth could not be saved by the ring of power. The ring of power only ever enslaved Middle-earth. In the same way, Christian, you and I are not going to save the world through political power. It's not going to happen. Political power only does one thing to the church. And we've seen it over and over and over again. Corrupts and corrodes it. Makes it a shell of its former self. They have the wrong hope. Hope in Jesus implies that we're not home, we're not at home in the empire. That while we exist here, while there's so many good and beautiful things here, this is not ultimately where we belong. And I don't mean that we're all going to die and go to heaven one day. That's not actually what I'm saying. But that all of the, the corrosiveness and the corruption and the decay of this current earth is not our home. Paul forcefully makes this point in Philippians chapter 3 
Um, so Philippians, Philippi was like this Roman city that was filled with like former Roman soldiers. It was the patriotic Roman place. Uh, I don't know what we would compare it to today, but it was, it was a nationalistic version of the Roman world. And when Paul writes to them, if you can hear what he's saying, he says things like, your citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. Right? And he's undermining their pride in their Roman citizenship. I say, no, 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 there's something more important than that. There's something far more valuable than that. There's something far more beautiful than that. So I went to Moody Bible Institute um, in Chicago. It's a conservative Bible college. I mean, it is the school where Bible was our middle name. Thank you, thank you. Pause for laughter, good. Um, our mascot was the archers. Right, and you're thinking, wow, that's kind of cool, like the archers. No, 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 no. Like as in the like shape, like of architecture, archers. Right, like, yeah. So you get, a, you get a pretty good picture of this school. We were not allowed to watch TV. It was the devil's stuff. It wasn't actually why we weren't allowed to watch TV, but we actually were not allowed to watch TV. Um, right, and I can, I can harp on this school for quite some time, and I could, uh, there's a lot of really damaging stories and experiences that people have had at this school. I personally was enriched by this school and blessed by this school in a number of different ways. One of them was this. We were required to go to chapel. That was not the enriching part. <laughs> but as you would walk into Moody Chapel, um, that had been there for like 100 years, which is kind of cool, there was like a little entryway or foyer that would then like go into the main entrance of the chapel. And you would walk in and you would see like above all the doors, there were just these lists of names. And for the first year, every day I would walk in and I would see these names and I, I don't know, maybe they're donors, like former graduates who went on to do, do like really cool things. I don't know. After about a year, I can't remember how, but I realized and discovered who these people were. Every single name was the list of someone who had graduated from that school and had gone on to be killed somehow and in some way in relationship to their uh, proclamation of the good news of Jesus. They were martyrs. There was hundreds of them for over a century that had gone to this school and gone on to literally give their blood for this good news of Jesus. And that strikes me uh, because, right, they, they probably had some different theology than we do in a lot of ways. And they maybe had a different flavor of politics than we would prefer or lifestyle than we would prefer. And yet what they had in common with us here right now in 2022 is our hope. See, their hope was not that, ah, I can die and go to heaven. It's not a big deal. I would suggest it was actually a little bit different. Rather than living this life in light of the next one, in other words, rather than living in a way that says, I don't care about my life because I'm just going to die and go to heaven. I think they were living life in light of the incoming kingdom of God. There's a king coming, and he's my king. And he's assured me that he's going to take care of me. 
And nothing you can do will threaten that or take that away from me. I'm in the palm of your hand, the palm of his hand, and nothing can snatch me from it. And he's bringing a kingdom of light and peace and love to this world, and I refuse to live into any other way than that here and now. And for many of them, it costs them their lives. They existed within the empire of darkness as agents of the inbreaking kingdom of light. They knew that the current powers and ways of things would soon give way to Jesus' reign of righteousness and peace. If Jesus is king, then nothing else has a claim on us. Nothing. Not some crazy pastor on Twitter, not some politician. Not death or cancer, not sickness, not old age. Nothing has claim to us because Jesus is king. And so nothing else offers lasting answers to our needs like Jesus does. Nothing. Not better legislation, not Christian nationalism, not making America great again. Nothing holds a candle to Jesus. And because of that, nothing else is more deserving of our trust, attention, and affection. We would do well to spend our lives giving our hearts and souls to the hope that we have. So what happens when we lose or misplace our hope? I think we've seen it. When we lose our hope or we put our hope in something other than Jesus, we become obsessed with winning or being right, right? And this is true of like our relationship with like the world. It's also true of our relationship with like our most intimate partners. We desire victory more than we desire justice. We adopt a win at all cost mentality because we become so afraid of being wrong or losing And we confuse power with righteousness, and we forget that following Jesus means loving God and loving our neighbors in humility and at great cost. But when we hope in Jesus, our King, we'll seek justice for our neighbors at any cost to ourselves. We'll embrace humility and loss as the way of Jesus. We're comforted in the knowledge that Jesus is closest to the powerless, the downtrodden, and the trampled on. And we'll find solace in the fact that this world, this empire, this kingdom is very much still broken, but Jesus is king. And one day, he will return and bring light to this darkness and order to this chaos and love to all of this hate. He's going to bring beauty from the ashes. He's going to bring life from the dead. Jesus is king, and he reigns. He reigns over our brokenness. He reigns over our chaos. He reigns over our death. He reigns. And one day, he will firmly and finally establish real peace, real justice, 
and beauty to this world. This is our hope. Jesus is our hope. Pray with me. Jesus, we, uh, we desperately need you. Our world desperately needs you. Our city desperately needs you. We need real resurrection in our hearts and in our bodies. This world is chaotic and stressful and hard just on normal days. (laughs) Don't let me go through life for one minute without you. Will you keep our eyes fixed on you? Will you help us hold you as our hope? Don't let us get distracted. Let us cling to you with everything we have as a church. Thank you, Jesus, our King, our Messiah, our hope, our love. We worship you this morning. Let our songs be pleasing to you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.